thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to continue that study on the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to try and cover chapters 12 through 15. Before we get into those chapters, it, is, uh, it might be a good thing for us to remember where, we, where we're at. First, the book of Deuteronomy is spoken by Moses to Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land. It is Moses' reflection on these 40 years and Moses' teaching to Israel, his testament, if you will. Thus far, we've seen the introduction that precedes the actual teaching, and today we're going to look into those teachings. So what I want to do tonight is give you an overview that spans chapter 12 through 26, which is the bulk of the teachings, and then get into chapter 12 through 15, highlighting some of the more important elements in these chapters. So one way to structure 12 through 26 is by sections and articles. It's a standard way of doing it amongst uh, Jewish scholars, and I'm following the same approach because it does make quite a bit of sense, and I think you'll find it reminiscent of something else you're familiar with. So, section one deals with the sanctuary and other religious matters. So now we're talking about the teaching of Moses. He starts by the sanctuary and other religious matters, and that covers from 12 through 16. This is what we're going to be focusing mostly on tonight. And then section two deals with civil and religious authorities. So he will talk about the judiciary, he will talk about the king, and he will talk about endowment of the clergy and the prophets. And that will run from the end of 16 all the way to the end of 18. Section 3 covers judicial and military matters, and that's from chapter 19 through 21. Section 4 covers a set of miscellaneous laws, mostly about civil and domestic life. And that's from chapter 21 till the end of chapter 25. Section 5, liturgical declarations, and that's chapter 26. Now, granted, you can find that type of structure in the book of Deuteronomy, but oftentimes, as you read it, you might find it a little 
disordered or a little out of order. Because Moses may be speaking about a topic, say marriage, and in the middle of that topic, he would jump to something that is seemingly unrelated. And I think it would be good for us to um, spend a little bit of time trying to understand how the book was put together before we focus on the chapters at hand here. So the first observation we should make is that the Midrash, which is, if you will, a book of saying or a book of reflection of Jewish rabbis on the scripture, which often makes ingenious connections and sometimes one might say even fanciful connections between parts of scripture, could do no better than to say that the later group of the book of Deuteronomy is arranged to show that a person who performs one commandment will be rewarded with the opportunity to perform another. Now, that's the explanation of that kind of uh, lack of structure, if you will, in the book of Deuteronomy. That's how they could connect these parts together, as if Moses is trying to illustrate how certain teachings regarding virtue are connected to other teachings regarding virtue. That explanation might seem fanciful to us, but in truth, it has a kernel. There's a, there's a kernel reality and there's a kernel truth. And to understand that, we have to realize a couple of things. First, some of the laws given in the teaching of Moses do fall into topically coherent, logically arranged groups. So, for instance, chapter 22, from verse 22 through 29 show you that Deuteronomy is capable of arranging things the way we would expect them to be arranged. Therefore, if that is the case, if indeed Deuteronomy could be arranged the way we would expect a book to be arranged, then these other parts, which seem unstructured, must have been unstructured on purpose. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, even if today it doesn't have much of a consequence, if you will, on our daily lives... I'm bringing this up because there is a tendency amongst many, many scholars today to seek, if you will, geological stratas in the book. They're trying to understand how the book is put together, how a book of scripture is put together. And what they tend to do is then divide it into multiple sources. And they will ascribe each source to a different unknown author. And they will assume that there is a hypothetical editor who later on took all these different sources and combined them together to form a book. This is the majority, it's the the majority opinion of most Catholic scholars today. And um, it is in in line with the historical critical method. The purpose of the historical critical method is to study scripture in its historical context and avoid, therefore, fanciful explanations and avoid personal explanations. In the Catholic Church, there is a document put out by the doctrine, by the congregation, the doctrine of the faith, and that document is signed by Cardinal Ratzinger. And in that document... He, Cardinal Ratzinger in particular, explains why the historical critical method can have great advantage. Because it helps us avoid fanciful explanation. And in some ways, I do rely on it because I try to go back to 
the text in its historical context when it was given so we can understand it appropriately. And that's a good thing. So, for instance, when you study the book of Genesis, the first two chapters or the first chapter of creation, you will see, if you read it carefully, that the creation of the stars comes after the creation of the plants. In other words, earth was created, the plants were created, then the stars were created, which makes no sense from an astronomical standpoint. We all know that. But the intent of the author was not astronomy or astrophysics. This was not a text written to give us a physical account of the creation of the world, even though in, in its general outline it is accurate. But the intent was to degrade, to degrade the importance of the stars. Why? Because in context, the sun, the moon, and the stars were worshipped. So there is a conscientious decision to list the creation of the stars after the plants to say that they're not important and they certainly do not have influence on our lives. That's an example of a historical critical method that is well applied to the text. In this instance one might be tempted to say that the reason why Deuteronomy is haphazardly put together is because it obviously comes from a variety of sources and there's some editor who decided to put it together and obviously didn't do a good job. Now, what is the problem with this type of explanation? Number one, it's hypothetical. Number two, it cannot be proven. Number three, it can insert doubt in the mind of the believer about the authenticity of Scripture. In other words, if the best explanation we, come, we can come up with is that someone has been sloppy about putting a book together, then you have to wonder, how is it that that someone is inspired by the Holy Spirit? Right? This is why I'm bringing this to your attention. And I, now I'm going to show you how when you use the historical critical method and put it in context, we're going to do it together. We can come up with some simple yet remarkable answers to something that might be bewildering to us. Realize that when you read scripture, you should always read it shields up. You read scripture defensively. You're not defending yourself from scripture. You're protecting scripture from yourself. Realize this, and let's be honest about it. How many of us sit down and read scripture to learn scripture. Usually, we're drawn to scripture because we have a question. We have a problem. We have, we have something that is bothering us. We may be suffering some, from something. We're coming to scripture with an angle. We're seeking an answer. When we do that, and it's a good thing to do, it's not a bad thing. We're bringing with us a whole set of assumptions. We assume so much about it. So then, we impose on Scripture a certain filter, a certain view of the world. We impose certain meaning on, on the text. I'll give you one of the most famous examples that I've given a number of times here, but it's worth repeating. And I hope by now, most of you have memorized this one. 
It's from the Gospel of St. Mark. So this is not from the Old Testament. It's from the New Testament. In the Gospel of St. Mark, our Lord says, Do not fear the one who can destroy the body. Rather, fear the one who can destroy the soul. Without proper thinking and understanding this in its theological, historical context, and keeping in mind the person of Jesus Christ, we misinterpret Scripture. So here's the question. Who do you think he was talking about? Just raise your hand. How many of you think he was talking about the devil? The reason why we arrive at this mistaken understanding of Scripture is because we assume that Jesus Christ is only merciful. You see? It's our misunderstanding of who Christ is that leads us to this conclusion. We think the destruction of the soul is necessarily an evil. Therefore, God could not do it. Hence, we're only left with the other guy, the devil. Now, what do we do? We give the devil a power he does not have. Can the devil send you to hell? Can you send yourself to hell? Yes? yes. Who says yes? Raise your hand. Okay, to those of you who say yes, let me ask you this other question. Can you send yourself to heaven? Well, how come you can send yourself one way and not the other? Do you see how wrong that is? If you could send yourself to hell, why do you have to undergo a personal judgment where you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you get judged? Is that a formality? Is Jesus about formalism? You just have to kind of, you know, stamp it? No. You can't send yourself to hell. Neither can you send yourself to heaven. Do you see how a mistaken understanding of who Christ is, a mistaken understanding of the context in which Jesus is speaking, can lead us to a mistaken theology and therefore lead us to a mistaken morality in the way we live our lives? That's why we have to read Scripture shields up. Who is the Lord of hell? No, Jesus Christ. Yes. Who can send someone to hell? Jesus Christ. And does going to hell depend only on my actions? Why not? Jesus Christ and what else? No, there's another factor. The saints, we say in the creed, we believe in the communion. What does that mean to say we believe in the communion of the saints? It means that even if my actions were terrible, but if somebody up there liked me when I was in diapers... And that somebody has a direct line with some of the big hotshots. Exactly. I still might make it. You see how we misinterpret Scripture by not paying attention to some of the fundamentals? Hence, we should never, ever interpret Scripture away from the church. Because the only place where you will find the truth is not in the Scriptures, as we just proved. It's in the church, in the Catholic church. Nowhere else will you find the fullness of the truth. Therefore, we study it in the light of the catechism. We study it in the light of the teaching of the church. We study it in the writings of the saints, in the understandings of the Father. And through all of that, we form a mind which is Catholic. And with that mind, we read scripture. So, shields up. We have to read it carefully. Very important. 
All of this to say that there is a fundamental reason why in the book of Deuteronomy things seem the way they are and not the way we would expect them. We are structured by PowerPoint. We are structured linearly, sequentially, topic A, topic B, topic C, right? If we're organizing a picnic, we're going to maybe talk about who we're going to invite, the location, food, time, permits, and whatever else we need. Notice, right? very sequential, categorized. This is how we are, and therefore we think the culture back then must have been the same. But what is the fundamental difference between our culture and the culture of Israel in the desert? What would you think is the distinguishing factor between our culture as a whole and their culture? Dependent on God. I'm not talking theologically. Because we, you know, some of us are still dependent on God, right? I'm just talking on a human level. Yes. They were tribal. We're still tribal in many ways, but it doesn't show up. Work in corporate America, you'll see how tribal we are. But that's a different story. <laughs> no, there's something else that's much more basic. Yes. Not, not theological. Very simple and practical. Keep on trying. Family? It's obvious. It's so obvious. When I, if I were to tell it to you, you go, oh, yeah, of course. No, not the church, not the family. Yes. Agrarian. Yeah, that's not the key factor. We still have some folks here who are farmers, right? But that's not exactly it. Yes. We live more comfortably. No, not exactly that. It's so obvious that it just stares you in your face. You don't see it. Yes. Education and technology. Yeah, what, what in particular? Yes. And, and therefore what? Somebody has to read it to them. We are pen and paper and books. We are a written culture. They are an oral culture. Isn't that obvious? So therefore the way you structure knowledge to remember it, is different. Here in this culture, I don't have to rely on on consonant or on, on similarity in words to make you remember something. Do I? Just go, go Google it. Yeah, what's the point? I don't have to structure what I'm telling you in such a way that one thing will evoke another, do I? No. It's written in your book. Everybody has a copy, you just go read it, right? Not so for an oral culture. Now, we've retained some of that in some of the tricks we use. We call them memory tricks. So, I, I, am a, I work in IT, and uh, I have a form of a neurological deficiency when it comes to spelling. The words, the form of the words, enter my mind, but I have no way of retrieving it. It never comes back out. You can try as much as you want. I'll never, I can't remember those. I cannot bring them back out. And I don't have to mention to you how much I've suffered of that when I was a kid. And I speak fluently three languages, and I'm a terrible speller in all three of them. <laughs> that should have been a negation for somebody, but it, it never happened. So one of the words I use all the time is developer. And I can't remember if it is one P or two Ps. So one way for me to remember that is to associate developer with PowerPoint. Because we use PowerPoint all the time. PowerPoint has one P. So developer has one, even though I cannot see it. Now, therefore, to me, developer and PowerPoint are connected. There is no connection. There is none of the categorized connection we're talking about. Yes? Okay. Here it is. This is why it would seem to our eyes, 
haphazardly put together because we're not paying attention to the sonority of the words. I'm going to give you some examples from other cultures where they did the exact same thing. There's another important element. In ancient cultures, if two words sounded similar, then the occurrence of one portended the occurrence of the other. That seems strange to our ears because we're not, again, sonorous. We don't pay attention to sonority, right? But we do pay attention to images. So we speak of déjà vu, right? The sensation that you're in a place and you've, you've been there before. That leads some people to talk about reincarnation. Why is that more rational than thinking that if two words sound the same, that there is some connection between them? So that's a technique used also in the book of Deuteronomy to relate teachings. Because one sound, the sound of one, will bring about the other. You understand? All right. So here are a couple of examples before we move on that I thought was interesting. So, for instance, there is a, um, an ancient book called the Aramaic Proverbs of Ahikar. You would find in that book that many proverbs are grouped together because of a common theme, while others share a pattern of wording. Words from the same root or from homonymous roots. Likewise, in the laws of Hammurabi, the laws about marriage begin by indicating that marriage with, with no written contracts is invalid, but then immediately turn to adultery, capture of the husband, abandonment, divorce, and only later do they return to the subject of betrothal. And what is interesting is that the laws immediately preceding marriage are about false claims, including false charges of adultery. So therefore, they, they organized it by concepts that are loosely connected, but presumably the sonority or the roots of the words used was enough to allow everyone to remember those things. Because you don't have a written copy in front of you to use in daily lives, yet these laws govern your life. This is why sometimes some of these old books seem a little harder for us to understand. Now, the others, another reason also is that sometimes in these laws, uh, they tend to be reactive. An event happens, and they might add something to the law to counter that event. Do you think we do that? Where? Where do we do that? And we do it all the time. We do that in our tax laws, and we do that in our... Um, City bylaws. You'll see amendments to the amendments and changes and things that don't necessarily seem connected, but they've happened. They had to add it to the bylaw to accommodate for that case, and they're, they're stuck it there. So we still do some of that today. Another area where we do that quite a bit is if you are managing a frequently asked questions on the web, not all the questions seem to be structured the right way until somebody later kind of think about it and restructure the questions together. So we still have that kind of dynamism evolved, you know, in our culture. right? And so um, that explains this. All right. So now let's look at those sections of chapter 12 through 16 a little closer. 
So, like I said, section one of the entire law deals with the sanctuary and other religious matters and spans chapter 12, verse 2 through 16, 17. And the first, and so it focuses on the sanctuary. The laws are mostly about the sanctuary or, or there may be related laws that are triggered as an association with some other subject which will then bring him back to the sanctuary. Think of it this way. Moses is relating to the Israelites what's important. And he gets talking about the sanctuary. And as he talks about the sanctuary, he might recall an event that had happened, which is important. He'll do it right there in context. Makes It's completely natural if you think about it as a spoken text. Not so if you think about it as an ordered, written text for a written civilization. Now, we should not be surprised at this point that he starts with the sanctuary. We've seen that over and over again since we started Exodus. In Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, we always start with worship. We always start with where we must pray, how we must pray, because this is the most important thing we could do. Prayer. Worship God. And therefore, he starts there. So, for instance, you can see that in other law collections, such as the Book of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 20, the priestly laws in Exodus chapter 25, the laws of holiness in Leviticus 17, you see we always start with worship. And What is different about Deuteronomy is that he is going to introduce this notion that once they have conquered the promised land, worship will be centralized. They will worship in only one place, unlike any other culture around them. Now, in a sense, it's, um, it's a novelty for a country to have only one centralized place to go worship to, but it should not surprise us because it started it started way back in Exodus when God commanded Moses to go tell Pharaoh that he should allow the Israelites to journey three days into the desert and worship him in one specific location, all of them. Pharaoh answered back, say, well, worship here. And the answer was, no, we must worship over there. Once that worship took place and the golden calf event happened, the tent was erected, the tabernacle. And that became the central location for worship. No longer could Israel sacrifice anywhere else. That will then continue once they reach the promised land. Therefore, Moses is telling them that the order which was created in the desert with the Aaronic priesthood is to continue through, throughout the life of Israel. And today, that has tremendous consequences in the Middle East. Because if the, the Israelites could worship in other locations, the Temple of the Mount may not have the tragic importance it has today. Because to them, no other place is allowed for the... They can't sacrifice in any other place but on the Mount. And we know that there is 
a mosque sitting up there, which is considered for the Muslims to be the third or second most important holy shrine in Islam. You can see how that has consequences today in the lives of so many people. That teaching. Clearly, when Jesus came, he abrogated the entire Aaronic priesthood, which disappeared when the temple was destroyed, instituted a new priesthood, and allowed a decentralized worship. Because he was now, God was with us, and we do not have to go to Rome to celebrate Mass. We can celebrate it in all the cities that we're in. And notice how that has also a very significant impact on the growth of the Catholic Church. If we all had to go to Rome to celebrate Mass, we would have a problem, and the Romans would kill us. Charitably, you know, pray for them, because in, uh, on Mercy Sunday, Rome will be invaded by Poland, because the canonization of John Paul II is going to happen then. So, notice how that religious structure impact society and impact economy in a very fundamental way. Nevertheless, they could not, because of the golden calf, they could no longer offer sacrifice. Only the Aaronic priesthood could do so on their behalf and only in one place. That was a temporary measure until the coming of the Son of Man who restored the royal priesthood to all the believers and allowed us to worship in every country. Moses tells them you'll worship in one place and he also tells them that if you worship any other god, if someone worships any other god, you must punish him. And he's very clear. He's very clear about the punishment, which is, in most cases, death. That kind of teaching we might find harsh today. Presumably because, well, presumably because we live in a society where most families are affected by idolatry in one way, shape, or form. Most families have children... Fathers, mothers, brothers, cousins who worship other gods. And if we were to apply that kind of teaching to them today, we would find it disturbing. We would find it strange in light of the mercy of God, in light of God's mercy. And here we must, we must as Catholics, maintain the full truth not part of the truth. In the 19th century, Catholicism was plagued by Jansenism. Jansenism showed, took one part of the truth, which is God is holy, and God cannot be approached by sinners in heaven. You must be holy to approach God. And have implemented that on earth. Therefore, they restricted communion to once a year, and even then, and focused mostly on God's justice and wrath. Since then, the pendulum swung the other way, where today we focus almost exclusively on the mercy of God. And 
Whereas Jansenism confused justice with tyranny, our understanding of mercy runs the risk of confusing mercy with licentiousness. Just be the way you are. God loves you because he's merciful, right? But if you ask people who believe in the, in the mercy of God, well, okay, if God is that merciful, then, you know, poor Hitler, right? Why can't God show mercy to Hitler? Just the way he was. He killed about six million people and committed suicide. But, but Jesus is merciful. Can he show him mercy? And most people will tell you firmly no. Hitler is one of those cases where almost everybody agrees the buck stops there. The implication being that it's so, he's so evil and out there that he must be, the, he must be excluded. Because obviously none of us is as evil as Hitler is, based on our own understanding of evil. So, oftentimes we're confusing mercy with licentiousness, simply to hide our own slothfulness, our own guile and hypocrisy. We don't mind God being merciful to us, because we deserve being merciful. We deserve mercy. Because we're the good guys. But heaven forbid that God be merciful to the really evil guys on the other side. Now, that I have a problem with. Mercy and justice are part of God's dominion. In God, there is no division. There isn't mercy and justice as if they're two separate things. God is simple. His mercy and his justice are not separate from who he is. They're not separate from his divinity. We use those terms to indicate different aspects. The truth is, Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And we must learn to recognize him as he is, not the way we want him to be so we be comfortable. Moses had no choice back then because he knew that the temptation for the Israelites was very great to espouse the Canaanite gods. Just as, just as the temptation is very great for us today to espouse the modern culture. And many of our kids actually do. It's the same thing. Back then, the Canaanite culture and the Canaanite gods and the Canaanite way of life looked cool and hip compared to the nameless, invisible, unrepresentable God who has only one sanctuary in Jerusalem. So he had, to rec- he had to use extreme measures, which, by the way, the rabbis watered down and never really applied, to tell them about the severity of these actions, to make them aware that the God you are worshipping is not to be mocked. And if you mock him, there are serious consequences. In other words, Moses' understanding of God was that of a divine king, a divine monarch who ruled, ruled, not one who is distant, leaving everything to us, who ruled the lives of his subjects and demanded fidelity to his laws. That understanding is very far from our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. 
Think for a moment, if you were to close your eyes and you're representing Jesus, you're thinking about Jesus, how do you see him? What image of Jesus is in your head? The shepherd on the cross, holding the babies and children. Pardon? The divine mercy image. There are beautiful images, all of them. But let me ask you this question. Where do you find the most complete description of Jesus after he resurrected in the Bible? The book of Revelation. Read chapter 2 of the book of Revelation and tell me if you recognize that Jesus. Legs of bronze, eyes flashing, a sword coming out of his mouth. Remember when I told you read scripture shields up? Yeah. Not to protect yourself from scripture, but to protect scripture from yourself. We look at it and we politely say, Amen. And let me go back to what I'm comfortable with. Right? And in the process, what are we doing? We are refusing the graces that God wishes to give us through the truth. Instead of saying, I'm going to conform myself to the image of Christ in Scripture, we say, I'm going to conform the image of Christ in Scripture to my own comfort zone. And now I made a little Jesus who scratches where, where I itch, and I'm comfortable. And I'm in grave danger of separating myself from heaven. Do you understand that? That's what was on Moses' heart. First, the care of God. Second, making sure that everybody understands the gravity, the gravity of separating oneself from God, the gravity of offending God. I've told you this a number of times. It's wonderful if you can go to confession feeling sorry because you offended God. That's amazing. It's a beautiful grace. But if you receive the grace to go to confession because you truly fear hell, that is also a very good grace because that's the beginning of wisdom. You're realizing who you're dealing with. You're realizing that the destroyer of souls is Jesus Christ. You're realizing he's the king of kings. Yeah, he's the shepherd. Absolutely, he's the shepherd, but he's also the judge. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who judges us. He's the one who made salvation possible. He's the one who judges us. For every sentence you can think of uh, that makes you think about the mercy of God, add another one that makes you think about his justice. So you never ever, and I'm saying that if you truly love Jesus, you never ever deform him in your mind. That's what is on Moses' mind when he's talking to them and giving them these harsh rules. I don't want you to see these rules as if you have, you know, this old grumbling man being just strict and irrational. Moses is consumed by God's love. Moses is consumed by God's love, and Moses knows also the power of God. He had seen it in Egypt. He saw what God did. He doesn't take God for granted. So when you read this chapter, don't focus so much on what seems to you harsh. Rather, focus on the greatness and the holiness of God. And that before him, every venial sin, every venial sin would terrify us if we were to see it 
in light of the holiness of God. The slightest venial sin would terrify us if we were to see it in the holiness of God. Don't take it from me, take it from St. John Vianney. Who one day asked God to show him himself as he is before him. So God did for about a second. And St. John said, and then God took that vision away from me. And if he didn't, I would have despaired. That's St. John Vianney. Let's not presume of ourselves. If you think, let me tell you one of the thoughts that is most horrendous in God's eyes is when we think of ourselves as being saints. That's one of the most awful thoughts we can have in God's presence. Because it's delusional. It is scary. We're like the Israelites. Oh, I'm, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm on my way. Yes, I'm just making it to heaven right now. Why? Because I had a good time in prayer. God bestowed upon me some graces and consolation. Therefore, I must be a saint. Why would he do it otherwise? Is it because I'm wretched and I'm hungry and I'm poor and he's coming to my aid? To help me keep going on the road? No, of course not. That's because I'm perfect. That's what's giving me all those graces. He only gives them to those who deserve them, right? Notice the prayers of the saints. Notice the prayers of the church. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me. This is the prayer should be in our mind. A sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So before we start grumbling about all our problems, right, which, we, are, which we, are, we have a ten, 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 temptation to do, Ask yourself this question, do you deserve better? If you're not convinced that you deserve hell, if you're not convinced that you deserve hell, go talk to St. Teresa of Avila because she says that she deserved hell. In fact, God took her and showed her the place prepared in hell for her. I'm talking about a doctor of the church. I'm talking about someone who had ecstasies who had her heart transfiberated by an angel, I'm talking about an amazing saint. See, this is what Moses is contending with. Us. We're no different. And so he had to speak in very stark terms, the way I'm doing here also, just so that the point can come across, get, get across. God is holy. We can't even begin to understand what that means. And we are sinners. And we owe him worship. Because he's the creator, we're the creature. And none of us is just or justified before him, save through that cross and the one hanging on it. So when you start thinking this way, you don't take any of that for granted. This is what Moses wanted them to do. Because he knew that if they took God's salvation for granted, the Canaanites are right there. And it's exactly what happened to Israel. Right? They had contempt for God, and they went after the Canaanites, just as we do. Just as we do. All right. So, he then, descri- he then describes periodic duties at the chosen place and remind Israel that you must go and worship God. Worshiping God is a sacrifice. It was clear for Israelites who lived away from Jerusalem then. You have to make the track to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice over there. Right? It's a sacrifice. Right? Coming to Mass, coming to Mass is a sacrifice. You're giving something. You're coming to give God something. 
You're not coming to receive, although you do, but that's not the proper frame of mind. You're coming to worship God. It's your duty to come and worship Him and give Him glory and thank Him for all that He has done for you. That's what you come to Mass for. Regardless of who the priest is and regardless of how you feel about it, none of that enters into the picture. We're duty-bound to give God the glory the way He asked us to do it. Not the way we want to. And Moses is very clear. You can't worship anywhere you want. You can't, you know, set up an altar and worship here. So today you have people who say, oh, I don't have to go to Mass. I just can sit home and pray. And God can hear me. Yeah, sure, God can hear you. But you're not doing what He's asking you to do. So therefore you're not going to receive the blessings that He had in, in store for you because you're simply being disobedient. You can be disobedient in prayer. Okay? You can be disobedient in prayer. You can be disobedient in the church. Even during Mass. Right? And I mentioned that a number of times for you. You come here in the church, you sit down, you start to have a conversation. And the tabernacle is right out here. That's a venial sin, right there. Talking in church unnecessarily is a venial sin. And you're piling them up. No, before Mass or after Mass. Mass is finished, you get up and say hi to people around you in the church. As if Jesus is not here anymore. It's a great sign of disrespect. As if Jesus just left up. He took his cross and he just left. He's gone. The movie's finished. Now we can get up and have a commentary on it. Never mind that this is a holy place where only holy things should be said. No, we're just going to start chatting around each other because, you know what, we just feel good about it. We can't wait to just step outside. And when we step outside, we can't keep our, lives, our, our voices low. We're just not mindful of who God is. You understand? This is the thinking about who God is and who we are in His eyes. And what must we do to worship Him in truth and in the Spirit? All these little things matter. It's as if you're there and your children came to honor you. You're sitting at a table. Dinner is finished. Everybody gets up, ignores you, and starts talking among themselves. But they came to honor you. How does that make you feel? Honored? Well, who are we when compared to God? So, he is very methodical and clear about their duties and what they're supposed to do. They must pray in these places, and also they must tithe every year. They're also they must remit the debts every seven years to their brothers. If a brother became indentured because he could not pay his debt, they took him as a servant. After seven years, they must set him free and give him back what was his. That was hard. That's a hard economy to live under. Why? Because we're thinking about it apart from God. You see, we're thinking about it as if everything depends on us. As if our own livelihood, the money we make, depends only on us. And God is not in a picture. But if God tells you, do this, and I will bless you, then He will bless us if we do what He asks. You see, if we can't worship Him in truth and in spirit, how can we live by an economic law He gives us? It's impossible, right? Therefore, how can He bless us? So... That's the law that he was that they were given and they were supposed to follow. So chapter 12 is about 
the conquering of the land, purifying the land from all Canaanite worship, worshiping God, and then to eat and rejoice. There is a note in the entire book of Deuteronomy about rejoicing, and Moses is insistent on that. You must rejoice. So this is not a book of a doom and gloom. After you worship God, you rejoice. You rejoice in His presence. You sit down. You eat in His presence. And He's insistent that that's what you must do. All right. In 13, Moses focuses on three cases in which individuals urge their fellow Israelites to worship other gods. So in 12, he basically told them, you clean the land from any worship of Canaan. In 13, now that you're established, the temptation will still be there. How would you, what do you have to do if somebody comes and tempts you? And he gives them three examples. The first one is striking. The first one is the proposal is made publicly by one who claims prophetic authority and backs up his claim by a sign that seems to authenticate it. Somebody comes and tells you, hey, this and that is going to happen because this is what the horoscope is telling me. And then three weeks later, it happens. What he said happened. It's attractive. It's enticing. And it is deadly. Moses is clear. God allows that to happen because he is testing you. That's why. One example, somebody puts it, is that if you're in the middle of the Mass and you're celebrating the liturgy on Sunday and somebody comes and tells you, Our Lady's appearing out there, what do you do? You finish the Mass. Right? No greater a miracle is happening anywhere. Even if Our Lady's truthfully appearing out there, and even if you could see it, see her, I mean, you stay where you are, you finish your Mass. There is no greater offering you can do than the Mass. It's about what you offer, not about what you get. So, in the second, it is made in secret by a close relative or a friend. In the third, the proposal has reportedly succeeded. An entire city has been led to worship another god. And in three cases, again, reflect that, is, that God is Israel's king and that worshiping uh, other gods is a high treason. Worshiping other gods is a case of a high treason. And in all cases, the punishment is extreme. What Moses is doing is trying to motivate the people to obey the law because he knows in his heart that they are not going to. And we know that from the closing song, which is prophetic. He knew Israel will not. But as a father, he's trying to tell his kids, if you don't, death is waiting for you. And in fact, when you read how, um, when you read how the... Rabbis interpreted chapter 13, especially verse 15. You would see that they said, in case of a city, if you were to go and destroy the entire city, the following conditions must hold. The subverters must be at least two adult males from the town itself, from the tribe to which the town belongs. The town must not be on the border, so it must belong to only one tribe. The majority of the population must have been subverted. Its population must be at least 100 persons, but less than the majority of the tribe. Every single individual must have been warned that the action was illegal and punishable by death. The townspeople are to be reasoned with and given a chance to reform, and the investigation must include all the procedural limitations which made executions rare in other capital cases. And so based on all these restrictions, the rabbis concluded 
that it was never expected to be applied. That that law that was given in chapter 13 was never expected to be applied. And the rabbis used the same type of narrow interpretation to limit capital punishment and the destruction of the Canaanites. So they essentially, they did not read it as a literal command. They read it as a symbolic one, warning them from danger. But the structure, the practical structure they put in place, limited the application of these laws. So there were very few people, if ever, were punishable by death. Very few people were stoned. Very few cities were destroyed. And even the Canaanites themselves. That goes to show that even back then, they were aware of God's mercy as well. And they didn't take the laws of Moses literally and just applied them blindly to every situation. But it also led to, led to excesses, especially in the time of Jesus, something we're going to see in the Gospels. 14, chapter 14 consists of two sections, one dealing with mourning and the other with diet. And essentially it's dietary practices that they must follow. And if you see Moses is basically telling them, you worship then he's telling them, do not listen to false prophets, do not listen to somebody who's taking away from God. And then he goes on to food, where he basically says, be, only eat clean food, because even food must lead you to God. So he's essentially surveying different parts of their lives and teaching them to practice what is true in God's eyes in every aspect of their lives. At the end of the day, Deuteronomy is not exhaustive. But as you read it, you understand your entire life should be governed the way Moses is telling you to live. And that is, um, if you will, a summary of, uh, of 14. And then lastly, I'll say a few words on 15. Because in, those, in chapter 15, especially 1 through 18, there are provisions which are part of the Torah to alleviate the suffering of the poor. Now he looks at people who are poor. And here the concern with extreme difficulties that can befall the poor if they're unable to pay their debts, if they're unable to obtain loans. You see, the second law that was given, which is every seven years you remit somebody's poor, everything you owe him, lend, would, would, would lead someone not to lend. Oh, you're poor. If I, lead, if I loan you my money now, hmm, two years from now you can't repay, I've lost it all. I'm not going to lend you, right? So he, he was insistent, do not, do not, uh, refuse a loan to a poor because of that law. Why? Because our temptation, even in economy today, even in the way we live with our own money, is to think our own money is our own. To think God is out of the picture. God has nothing to do with our, my life, my economy, my finances. And therefore, I'm going to live my life based on what I know, what I see, how much money I have, and that's all I'm going to do. Now, obviously, you have to govern your life. You have to act responsibly. You have to do all those things. But if you take God out of the picture, you're in a world of anxiety. And that's where you're going to live. And so Moses is warning them not to do that because when you do that, you take God out of the picture and then you're in a world of anxiety. That's why poor people are important. They help you remember God in your life. They help you understand that without him, there is nothing you can do. So... Obviously, if you look at what happened in the life of Israel, we notice that there are evidence for the remission of debts in the second temple period. So Nehemiah and Ezra, there are two books who detail the construction of the second temple. There are three temples. The one by Solomon was the first, 
The third one is the Herodian temple, the time of Jesus. Between these two, there was a second temple built by Ezra and Nehemiah and around the 5th century B.C. And during that time, they did indeed cancel all debts owed by fellow Jews. And they were able to persuade the nobles and prefects to do likewise and to return property and children they had seized as collateral. So that happened. But later on, so around the first century BC and the beginning of the first century AD, people stopped loaning. There was a credit crunch. They wouldn't trust each other and they would not loan. And so a sage by the name of Hillel devised a legal means for circumventing the remission. The means was called the pros bull, a document or declaration in which the lender declares to the court that a particular loan will not be subject to remission. By this means, Hillel ensured that the law would not undermine its own purpose. And that's, we know, something that happened even under Jesus, because he would tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they allow people to come and declare their wealth as korban meaning consecrated to God. And since their wealth is consecrated to God, therefore to the temple, they don't have anything left for them to take care of their aging parents. It was a great way for them to circumvent their duties, pretend to give the money to the temple, and make arrangements, essentially, to have a trust established for them to benefit from that money. So, how do we properly interpret a law without the Holy Spirit? we can easily get lost. And we saw in the excesses of Israel that particular experience and where that led them. That led them to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Therefore, in these four chapters that start with worship and then talk about the refusal to hear those who want to lead you astray in worshiping other gods, the sobriety in food, the attention to worship God in truth when you eat, but also to rejoice, to have a party in his presence, and to not forget the poor. Moses tells them, the poor you will have always. Same words that Jesus will use later. The poor you will have always. Not to forget the poor and be liberal with them, because after all, you also, talking to the Israelites, you were slaves in, in Egypt and God came and freed you. So if he freed you and took care of you, why do you think he will not take care of you when you tend to the need of the poor? And that is the principle that must apply in our own lives. Every time we're tempted to fear a situation, every time we're tempted to be anxious, every time we're tempted to think that we are in a tough spot, we should always turn to God and say, you saved me on the cross, you will save me now. Because I'm never alone. And that is the essence of the whole book of Deuteronomy. As you read it, do not read it like a scroll, which is anonymous. See the person of Moses behind him, behind it. Meditate on Moses and develop a tender devotion to this man who is a saint. And one modern example we have of Moses is John Paul II. If you want to think about Moses, think about John Paul II. That would be the same kind of characteristics. Right? So 
That will help you see how a father is talking to his children, leading, leading them to obey God, pleading with them to obey God, and knowing already from the get-go that things are going to go exactly the way he's teaching them. And therefore, at the same time, he is a man preserving his peace and not despairing. God bless you. Let's finish with a word of prayer, and then we can take some questions. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. Why isn't it discussed with the pulpit? Uh, presumably because... You see, Catholicism isn't just a group of lay folks who are led by priests. That is... Thank you. That is not Catholicism. Right? The, remember, we, all of us, are prophets, priests, and kings or queens, Right? Men and women, we all share in the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. We all have the Holy Spirit given us. We all are supposed to be, to understand what God wants for us. Yeah? So, in large part, we also have a duty to educate ourselves, to better understand what must we do and what must not we do. And so if you think about education in general, you can see that morality has been taken out of the curriculum. We do not teach morality anymore in, church, in schools. I mean the virtues, the natural virtues, right? Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. We don't teach those. Hence, even on a natural level, we're not teaching people to be disciplined, to have a sense of sacrifice, to have a sense of uh, tact, to be tactful, right? Even in our social gathering, we, t- we tend to lack those things. We're so laid back, right? We've forgotten the ways of receiving people. If you have a large gathering coming at your door, we don't have anymore that habit of being at a door and receiving people. And thinking of ourselves as the hosts and being at the service of those who are there. We just have a potluck. Everybody bring their food and everybody take their food back. Notice how even that structure is not communal anymore. We've taken, so it's not, I'm bringing all that up to point out it isn't just something that happens inside the church. It happens in our homes. It happens in our dealings with ourselves, with others. We generally speaking, have taken Catholicism out of the culture. So it has receded, and we see it inside the church. Uh, the, there is no sense of reverence. And the reason is, reverence usually stem from justice for those who are less perfect, and from deep love for those who are perfected. But justice has a lot to do with reverence. If you step into a room and you see two guys standing there with guns, chances are you're not going to chat with the person next to you. Have you ever seen a situation where you have two guys with guns and a bunch of people chatting among each other? Do you? No. The fear, the fear of God is absent. We take God for granted. Simple. So, 
Yes, a priest can preach from the pulpit, but I do wonder how much of an effect he will have other than perhaps causing some people to leave because they'd be offended by his preaching. It is something that has to start from a greater sense and understanding of who God truly is. God as a judge, God as a king, that hell is real and that many, 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 many souls go to hell. And they're going to hell not because they just chose to go to hell, but because Jesus is sending them there, which is shocking today. But that is the truth. So it has to be, it has to start with catechesis, with morality, with a sense of who God is. There's so much involved into this. There's a rebuilding of an entire Catholic culture. It's going to take time. Hearts must change. It's going to take time. So yes. So on the, on the subject of judgment, we have to realize that Jesus is continuously judging the world. In fact, he's pretty busy judging if you consider everybody's dying today. All of them are going to stand before him for their personal judgment. doesn't matter. Muslim, Jew, Hindu, unbeliever, doesn't matter. Everybody falls under the dominion of Jesus Christ. Nobody escapes. So he's judging continuously on a personal basis and on the level of society. His judgment doesn't necessarily have to come as a final manifestation, but it comes through what? The four plagues, the four usual suspects. Earthquakes, which is essentially a representation of all physical phenomena when, when nature gets out of whack. And boy, is nature getting out of whack. Right? The economy, that's the second one. When the economy gets out of whack, and is the economy getting out of whack, right? Two. Three, plagues, meaning diseases. And four, wars. That's how he judges. How do we know that? Fatima, our lady, told the children, my son is about to punish the world with another war. So, who is the final instigator of the Second World War? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? So, it's not like he's absentee God somewhere else, right? And uh, all these things are happening, and maybe in two million years he's going to judge people. No. It's constantly happening, because he is with us. Possible. Absolutely. We, we don't know how things evolve, because Jesus himself says, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? On earth, He asked that question. right? So yes, what happens is that when society, like an individual, if a society starts to enshrine evil laws, laws which are contrary to the natural order, when we consider that which is evil good, and we make it as part of our law, then the society itself is now tending towards evil. And... It will condition people who are in that society that way. Therefore, they themselves cannot reach salvation because they're thinking they're doing the right thing. So what is Jesus, what is God going to do in a situation like that? He removes the source of that evil by destroying that whole society. And he's done it many, many times throughout history. Many, many, many times. He does it constantly. He's the Lord of Lords. People 
fear war and famine and death and destruction. And the truth of the matter is, the only person you should fear is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of those things compare to the wrath of God. Yeah? Our business is with Him and Him alone. That's it. You had a question? Yes. Very good question. What is a synagogue? Moses told them, you can sacrifice only in one place. But practically, he didn't tell them you can only pray in one place. They were expected to pray. So even, for instance, uh, before a butcher would kill an animal, he's supposed to say a prayer. Therefore, prayer and teaching is part of their daily lives. They don't need to do that in the temple. Hence, the synagogue was born as a place where people could assemble to learn the scriptures, memorize it, reflect on it, and pray. Yes, that's exactly it. They cannot receive forgiveness of their non-personal sins, not personal sins, right? Because this is not available, period, under the law, unless they can go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice, which they were obligated to do three times a year. Now, there is no temple to go to. What is their hope? Their hope is Jesus Christ and the communion of the saints. That's their hope. Not necessarily. But that's the beauty of the Catholic Church. So there is a priest, and I forgot his name, and I think he's a saint now, who was a Jew and who converted. He became a Catholic and he became a priest. And he was connected to a convent of nuns who were praying for his intention all the time. His mother stayed as a pious Jew. She would not accept his argument. And she died a Jew. And he was grieved that she died away from the truth. And it, 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 it lay heavily on his heart. And only late, years later, he received a letter because of the war and a bunch of other things. The letter took time. Finally, he got a letter from one of the nuns who told him that in a vision, Jesus told her that at the moment of her death, he himself bestowed so many graces on her that she found him irresistible. She could not resist him. And she said yes to him on her deathbed, and she was saved. It was because of her son. Not because necessarily of her piety, but because of that son who was a beloved of Jesus. So that's the whole thing. You want to save souls? Become a saint. Pardon? No, it's not the Rabbi Zoli. No, he became a Catholic. Yes, but that's not him. Yes. Yes, but if you study the history of this whole area, it's nothing new. It's been persecution after persecution since Jesus was crucified. So it's all in his hands. It is entirely possible, and he did it before, that he might be pulling all the Christians out of that area because that's what he wants to do. He may have a plan in mind that we cannot even see, but it is for the greater glory of his name and therefore of the church. So don't worry. Pray and then stand in awe, as St. Paul says, and watch what he's going to do. Yes. Could you give me an example of what you mean by being stronger in one area or in the other in your spiritual life? Okay, so here's the thing. The question, therefore, is in your spiritual life, you, might, may, you may have a greater preference to one form of prayer versus another, right? Here's the thing that you need to be aware of. Even with Mass, you can go to Mass with the wrong intention. You can pray with the wrong intention. St. John of the Cross, who is a master in the spiritual life, warns us against what he calls people who have a spiritual sweet 
tooth. In other words, people who love to pray because they love to pray. Not because they love Jesus. So therefore, when they have a, they have a, a rich spiritual life that God gave them, and therefore they enjoy that. But as soon as it goes dry, they give up. So be on the watch for that. I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking to all of us. Be on the watch that dryness is part of our duty. You can come to Mass and feel you've not been in Mass. Your head is like a ping pong. Thoughts are going here and there. You can't even concentrate for two seconds. can't even say a prayer straight. Start saying a prayer. You find yourself thinking about politics. And your mind is all over the place. And you think, I just missed Mass. Well, uh, there was a man, a young man, who was having that same experience in a Mass with Padre Pio. So he was really depressed. Because he wanted to go to a Mass with Padre Pio. He managed to go to a Mass with Padre Pio. Here's Padre Pio with the stigma of the whole thing. And his mind is all over the place. And as Mass ended, he was sitting on his, in the bench completely dejected. And Padre Pio came over to him. You know, God gave Padre Pio a supercomputer. That's how I explain it. He gave to, came to him, patted him on the shoulder and said, Good job, good job. What was the good job? He tried. He never gave up. So it wasn't about the pleasure he was getting out of Mass. He was doing it because he really wanted to. And God kept on putting all these obstacles in front of him, and he kept on trying. That was very pleasing to God. See, it's not about what you receive, it's about what you give. Yeah? All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.